Hi everyone, welcome to this week's episode of Respectfully Disagree. It is a new month and we have a new theme. This month we're going to be talking about internet feminism, its various manifestations, all the dilemmas that come up around it and what it means for us to engage with these dilemmas constructively as feminists. And to start off with, for the first episode, we're going to talk about the idea of passing the mic and what internet feminism has done to it. What does it even mean? And to unpack this complicated question, we have with us Swati Kamle. She is an anti-caste intersectional researcher and activist. Um, and to start off with, let's ask everybody, what do you make of the term pass the mic? This is Shishti, your host, by the way. Hi, this is Swati. We know that in the 70s, pass the mic was used in a hip-hop culture. Uh, and from there, it has been taken in the movement, especially in the uh, Northern American context. Uh, black activists use that term to say that people who are in the privileged location, uh, in, that, in their context, it's the white people who are in the position of power, that they use their privileges and power to create spaces for people whose voices have not been heard, who have been speaking, but the spaces were not there for them to, you know, reach out to the mainstream. And so from there, it has become like a lexicon globally for every marginalized communities to say that, okay, our voices matter, our stories matter, and we are the ones who will be telling those stories, not, you know, the people who have power and privileges. So it has moved on from people who have power creating spaces to us creating our own spaces, taking the mic, mic ourselves, holding our own narrative ourselves. That's really, really interesting. And we thought we could actually look at some examples and unpack this idea of what it means in different contexts and the dilemmas it brings up. Um, so to start off with, one of the contexts in which it, it's become really popular to talk about it is the idea of a manual, right, or an all-male panel, which really in the late 2000s, there was a lot of conversation about it. You know, you had Tumblr posts going viral about like all-male panels and like how to identify a manual and then people sharing those screenshots on social media. So there was an awareness about, okay, perhaps now when you're having an academic conference or a literature festival or a film discussion, Maybe this is not something that you can do or this is something that you have to think about, right? And then you see it in other contexts. You see it in the context of gender. You see it in the context of race. You see it in the context of caste. Um, this, con this question of panels. So first, to start off with, I mean, how did both of you react to all of this discourse around panels? Have you ever been to one, of, one such discussion where you felt like, okay, the voice that matters is not here and these people are just droning on and on. I mean, there have been so many manuals and so many upper caste panels where uh, you are in the audience. And I mean, yeah, I think on Zooms and so on, when we went virtual, we've seen all those uh, contradictions, but also the tokenism. Like there would be one voice amongst drowning amongst five folks. There would be five folks who would be talking impassionately, very, very uh, animated uh, on behalf of the person on the pa panel, uh, drowning their voice completely. So it's, it's, it's all too familiar. Uh, and the responsibility of asserting 
at the risk of sounding again an arrogant person, sounding as though you're taking more time. Although when there are five and uh, like you know Pakas folks or five white uh, men are sitting there talking on the topics that you have lived, you've done research, ample research on. You have to abide by that ten minutes limit that is given to everybody equally. You, at the risk of being arrogant, you assert yourself. Um, the gatekeeping is real. It happens. If I have one foot at the door, I'll make sure that the voices that I represent my community, my folks, uh, in the best way that I can. Yeah, absolutely. And I mean, that brings us to a really important point, right? Because uh, it requires a lot of emotional labor to be educate, to be the one to educate and also keep the door open, like you were saying. Um, and it also, when we say that, then it also highlights another problem, which is that the, the phrase passing the mic by default, somebody is holding that mic and they are deciding who to pass the mic to. So has this actually like changed how the spaces are, uh, change anything about who occupies spaces or is it, again, like the power dynamic remains unchallenged, right? Because another thing is also inevitably, um, and this is an example that we see sometimes with a lot of like these activist NGO type, like Instagram accounts where they do a takeover and then they give the account for one day to somebody and then they and they call it passing the mic but then the mic is always taken back at the end of the day so yeah it it just feels like the phrase itself has become something very reductive it indeed has ruhita and uh, you know it's also uh, goes to show uh, like you said who do they uh, think is worthy of holding that mic or uh, when the mic is passed on who can represent uh, that mic best so you will have again a gradation amongst ourselves you will be pitted against your own community so to say because the mic space is like a handkerchief and there are millions of us who speak in million different ways we are speaking in our vernacular ways. We are doing arts. We are doing academic work and we are doing activist work. And whose voice is desirable? Who sp speaks better English? Who sounds palatable? You know, and then you are constantly thinking, am I appeasing to that Savarna gaze? Am I appeasing to the Savarna ear when I am coming? Why am I, you know, uh, selected? Am I selected because I uh, sound like them? that I have learned to perform in a way that they like. Is this again counterintuitive to my space, my community, who has lost the freedom of being who they are because they have to constantly perform? Uh, there is a lot that goes on in passing the mic dynamics uh, where people in the location of privilege feel frozen in guilt. Oh, after all that we've done, we did all this. And then these are ungrateful people who, again, criticize us for not doing enough. Uh, can we not, you know, have a break? That Can we not speak on behalf of even that kind of conversations and questions are being asked in academic spaces? Can't the researcher from upper caste location uh, research the communities? Now, even uh, in the media recently, I wrote an article uh, 
criticizing the episode on um made in heaven uh, series in on amazon prime and there i am also writing that the question is not about uh, who can write tell the stories research the stories of the uh, oppressed communities better i mean of course the stories should be ethically morally should be spoken by the people who experience it but more important question is how are you doing if you are taking on the responsibility of telling those stories writing those stories researching those stories how are you telling those whose interest do you have in mind is it because it is trendy now to speak about caste issues marginalization because in global community thanks to the movement space activism globally uh, there is a consensus even within capitalist forces that we cannot move ahead we will lose market we will lose audience if we uh, do not engage with a certain community do not speak a certain language so that political correctness has come into these spaces because there has been constant vigilante uh, you know constant questioning critical questioning that emerges from the uh, spaces so it's a good by product but is this becoming radical are you really 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 doing it from the space of being human yourself and ethically collaborating with the communities who have been disenfranchised whose voices have been minoritized uh, if you're not doing that if you're doing this just for, to feel good to uh, you know break into a market that is potential market for you it's task half done and then you can't be frozen in guilt for doing something that you should do all along because you are in the position of privilege at the cost of somebody else being oppressed you would use the phrase um, ethical collaboration which felt like it was different in a way from passing the mic it it treads the same territory but but it feels like something else like something of a um i don't know it's moving forward in the discourse a little bit so can you explain what exactly ethical collaboration would mean and how is it different from passing the mic so to speak absolutely i mean you've pointed it out really uh, well rohita that's the that's the essence and that's the feeling that i was uh, getting at i've been a busy past two years uh, researching looking at indigenous communities globally in south africa new zealand australia canada how they've been you know uh, um, looking at Uh, movement space activism space from this healing community building uh, fostering knowledge for the new com- for for the upcoming uh, generations for the you know future generations and from that uh, point of view uh, they've been really uh, going into uh, policy spaces uh, within their country context and creating these on the committees and so on creating these uh, list of things that one should keep in account when you are researching engaging with the communities indigenous communities uh, you can look into san community in south africa who have recently a uh, few years back uh, brought out this uh, uh, you know um, article around what are the ways in which uh, one the community who has held privileges once comes in and uh, 
enters and engages and wants to learn, uh, wants to know about their ways of being. Uh, they are saying it should not be a helicopter uh, type of research. It should not be. You just walk in, uh, you come in, you extract, and you go out. No, they are saying that it's a, a tedious process. It's a process based on respect, reciprocity, that you listen as to what are the issues that are important to us inherently uh, uh, about us rather than your own research agendas, rather than your own prejudices and biases. You come, you learn, and you represent us if that need be, but not without collaborating with us, not without acknowledging us, not without holding some of us in that research committee, be it, you know, writing uh, collectively or creating collectively. So uh, knowing that you have power, knowing that you have resources, how you use those power and resources to uh, put our agendas and put our issues on the forefront. So that way you become a meaningful ethical ally. That way you ethically collaborate. And that it, ethic is imperative. It's, it's not about... Is it legally correct, you know, uh, whatever you've done, checklist of ethical considerations in the research, oh, you've filled up that paper, that's legally allows you to enter in the community, but what do you do beyond? No, it's not just the checklist. It's going beyond and engaging with the community, and that is an ethical, ethical responsibility. It's even justice, you know, social justice uh, at the heart of it. So that's like, you know, I, I like it. I respect uh, the kind of work that has gone on in all these indigenous uh, spaces. And it's, it's emerging in indigenous communities within India also, uh, anthropologists uh, from within the Northeastern scholarship, you will see that they are writing about this also. And I think we need to look at this language as a potential solidarity allyship uh, work yeah, that's, that's really, really, like, that's an incredible way to look at it and an incredible insight to bring into this conversation, you know. I was also thinking about it as you look around you in the space of, like, film and the ways in which these timelines work, writer's room, etc., and that profit is always at the center. So you're also looking at the other side that, yes, you do have to run against time. You do, okay, have you taken the appropriate permissions? Have you not? But, you know, on actually reflecting, I thought that this conversation coming up was so important because then it forces the people who spend that money, like the OTT platforms now will have to think about this, right? Because now that there is a noise, there is a conversation, now you will have to think about how do you incorporate this into your process. It might not obviously happen to the best of how it needs to happen, but there will be accountability. And I think there's always a building, building on that, right? Because like you're saying, once it's become a buzzword, once you think that even you think that it's progressive to bring this up in your storytelling, but what does the politics of your filmmaking actually entail? I think that's a really interesting question to actually think through. Um, and you know, in that context, I wanted to bring up another example, which is the elephant whisperers, because how interesting that you mentioned this idea of helicopter intervention. And more often than not, I think not just elephant whisperers, it stood out as an example because it won the Oscar and then there were you know, several uh, uh, 
controversies, several conversations with Bowman and Belly, the subjects, uh, the kind of compensation they received, the kind of capital that they got as a result of the film versus what the director and the producer got. Um, but it feels like it's a problem of documentary filmmaking and academia at large, that this is representative of a broader problem where, where the ethical issues aren't thought through. And it's kind of like past the Oscar, you know, like the past the mic thing. It's like you will have a photo shoot. They will not be on stage, but the Oscar will be passed with an elephant standing there or with a net at a Netflix conference because those are the term of engagement terms of engagement with um with the quote unquote subjects of your film. So I was wondering in this context, like what does it mean to pass the mic and what would rather ethical collaboration or the moving away from passing the mic discourse even look like? No, absolutely. I mean, it's a very, very good example of how, you know, you can see where they went wrong, not only the uh, documentary makers, but also Netflix as a platform, media, the way media covered, you know, uh, the stories of uh, blaming the uh, people whose narratives were taken as though they are being ungrateful by slamming a legal case or whatever, you know, the way the narrative was built around the way language. I, I know, it, I think we all know how media is complicit in uh, also writing on this narrative. So, I mean, again, it's it start from the time when you conceive an idea. And that mindset has to be questioned. How can you just go in and expect them to collaborate because they will have a screen time? Right from the time that you're writing the story, spending time with them, talking with them, document, write down what kind of collaborative ways you are doing this. Ask, ask people if you, have, you are in doubt, talk to 10 more people. Talk to the people that might be in academic field from that space, from that community. Collaborate with other people who you would think that can highlight the story better from within that space, you know? So your subject, quote unquote, uh, humanize them. Don't just treat them as these three entities rather than look at them part of this larger community. How do you conceive that? That comes from a lot of accountability. That comes of a lot of educating, unlearning, uh, you know, self-questioning. Because you are riding on privileges. You can use your gender. You can use your color in the global platform. You can use all that. But the fact remains. Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, you were speaking about all of these different spaces becoming, like, not becoming, but are, have always been dens of caste privilege. And... That also is a really um, like important point because when we talk about um, you know the idea of giving screen time in these spaces, we're assuming that there is a mainstream in in which people can be included, but there's never a question of changing what the mainstream even means, right? And that really applies to activism and movements also as a space where the mainstream is just already constructed by everyone who is privileged. So in like when the Me Too movement was going on, um, you know, Christina Dhanaraj, she wrote an article on First Post um, talking about this exactly, right? How the movement was kind of not, not just hijacked, but in the first place, like completely overtaken, like completely 
built up as if that were always the mainstream and that as if Savarna women were always the ones who came up with this whole idea in the first place. And in this article in First Post, uh, Christina Dhanraj, she says, she talks about how Angela Davis, in a talk, she asks um, you to imagine what it would be like to have the most marginalized of women stand in as signs for the category of women. But the type of women that lead feminist organizations and popular discourses on gender are typically those that come with caste and class privilege. Um, so that brings us to the question of, there is a mainstream that has been constructed. There are people who are holding the mic within that mainstream. So when the mic is quote-unquote passed, who is actually listening? And like, how do we decenter that mainstream? Because everyone's kind of primed to think of feminist discourse in a certain way because the knowledge has been constructed and mainstreamed in a certain way. So to even displace that, again, like passing the mic almost now feels like a cop-out which um, is happening, right? Where it's like it's enough to just pass the mic because the actual mainstream won't be um, decentered or even displaced in that sense. So what is exactly, yeah, like is essentially passing the mic enough to change that? The narrow frames in which intersectionality has been understood and done in the quote-unquote mainstream spaces is that we will go on doing what we've been doing. There will be a space for the anti-caste black communities and his, you know, brown and Hispanic communities and all the others, LGBTQI+, they will have their own little spaces and silos and they can, you know, do their own thing. And we are rid of our responsibility to question because the spaces are, the mic is already passed. No. You know, if you, if you really wants to, want to stand together, you'll have to do that unlearning, listening, You'll have to engage uh, in acknowledging that you have privilege, you know, and investing time, effort and resources that you've been riding on, be it NGOs, be it uh, academic spaces, uh, research grants, whatever, film and media grants. How do you use that to decenter? It will be uncomfortable because, you know, probably you are getting attention and center stage for the first time. But it's not about you as an individual. It's not about uh, you as a collective of 10 women who have changed the discourse of feminism in India. It's about including those 20 voices in those 200 voices or millions of voices in that center stage. Absolutely. I think couldn't agree more with that. And sort of through the whole episode, I think we've deconstructed, you've deconstructed for us this idea of how collaboration really should be the question at the center rather than the idea of passing the mic or passing the mantle. But I do wonder that on the flip side, do you think that the discourse of passing the mic has had any positive effect or do you think it's been disruptive in a sense? Because I do wonder, you know, that like without that discourse, would you even see any difference or any kind of like, you know, where you would have like a manual on manual or an upper caste panel on panel without even conversation? So do you think it's been helpful in any way? Or do you think it's been disruptive because it's better to question the system altogether? Or does it have to be a step by step process to getting there? No, I completely agree. I mean, it's it's very important that we don't uh, throw uh, the terms and ways of thinking that have helped us along the way. It might not have been perfect, but it served us. So, for example, when you come to anti-caste space, 
Now there is a lot of conversation around the term Dalits and its usage and how it's an oppressive term that is created by an oppressor to identify and define us and that we don't want to be reject that term. So that rejection of that term comes with this higher idea of uh, finding new ways to identify ourselves. And it comes with an evolved understanding of ourselves, the sense of uh, radical political awakening that has taken place. But Dalit also comes from a radical awakening uh, space in the 70s, be it uh, in the 70s or even before that. It has served the Dalit literature, Dalit panthers. It has served the anti-caste movement. So I wouldn't say that we reject the term altogether because there is a lot of history that has been created with that term. So pass the mic for whatever it has been for past three, four uh, years, if we look at it only in the internet, purely internet space. Uh, it came, it created necessary conversations to be had. A lot of black uh, folks, activists, writers use the term to educate uh, the global community around how to engage with them, how to create spaces, you know, uh, of not for them, but with them. Um, and it served, it served uh, for a while. It's not that we shouldn't criticize it. While we criticize, we acknowledge that it has served and that we move on. We find new ways of uh, connecting, collaborating, identifying ourselves, uh, keeping in mind the end goal that the solidarities at the global le level is what going to help us in the longer run to dismantle these structural oppressive ways in which our human society has been, you know, manipulated, exploited. That's really interesting. Like the power of words and terminology and holding on to them is like such an important point that you raised. But there's also the like one thing that keeps happening time and time and time and again is that the words just go in a direction where we can't exactly predict. And like over time, they kind of lose their potency and they kind of get diluted i mean we're having this conversation about passing the mic for that reason because the phrase just became very weird and like not at all standing in like not at all abiding with the original intent same with the idea of listening actually like we were talking about it but then again like you pointed out earlier a lot of people um cishet men savarna men savarna women talk about wanting to listen and learn and then that also became a cliche, a stereotype. So everything becomes a cliche after a point of time because it, it almost seems like the moment like privileged people start saying these things, it just loses its potency. You know, so it's really interesting to think about who words belong to and who can articulate what because it seems like, again, from what you pointed out, the work of the privilege is to look inward rather than putting the onus on somebody else. And that's also the problem with saying you want to listen and learn, so you're passing the mic. It just abdicates yourself of all responsibility. So, yeah, the question of, like, do we need to be more mindful and intentional about words in this context is that like the way to move forward over here because otherwise it anything that comes up it just becomes less potent over time 
Well, these are very important thoughts, uh, Rohita. I think um, it's also about how you act. When you have listened, when you have acknowledged that you come from privileged location, that the words that you have borrowed from the critical uh, anti-caste space or critical you know, black feminist space, that those are the words that you're borrowing to uh, showcase your solidarity, to showcase your allyship, it will boil down to acting. How you, in your everyday life, your day-to-day -day life, dismantling, questioning yourself, like it, it really comes down to that practice of not owning those words, but living those words, the ethos that those words convey. It shouldn't be performative. The words that pass the mic, uh, intersectionality, uh, other terms that sound radical but lose their air as soon as it is mouthed by the people who are at the powerful position. They'll have to dismantle the powerful structures it, it is their task because they are inhabiting those spaces. When that is done, when you start to live the life without that coercive power, without that power that uh, takes you over, it, it will be the next step of building trust where what you say is what you're doing and that will be seen by the people who have lost trust because these systems have never worked in their ways. Absolutely, I think so brilliantly put about um, what, how we really think through this. And I think we start off our month thinking about internet feminism in this context, because so rightly put that, how do you perform the things you're talking about without being performative? That is really the biggest dilemma at the center of being on the internet and how you voice your thoughts there, how you listen and how you actually reflect from there onwards. And thank you so much for joining us for this conversation on what passing the mic means, but really taking us from there into so many other ways of thinking. Uh, definitely going away from this episode, thinking about a lot and thinking through about what to do, what not to do, how to dismantle, how to uh, think through, you know, the, the power that you occupy and what does it mean to really like question that and collaborate meaningfully. So thank you so much, Swati. Wonderful. So wonderful to have this uh, conversation, Trishti and Rohita. Thank you. This podcast is brought to you by TS Studios, the production company that brings the Swaddle's creative point of view to original podcasts and films.